Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Good morning. Um, In case I haven't met everybody, my name's Shannon and I am a member here. Uh, Let me pray. Father God, um, I thank you that we can gather here as your people today. I pray, Lord, that as um, we look at your word, that you would give us minds can concentrate. Um, And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would also be stirring with us and that we would be hearing and open uh, to the things that you would like to teach and speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought I'd start off this morning by asking you to think about what you uh, imagine when you think of an abundant life. If you were to think of what a full life looks like, uh, what comes to mind for those of you that are on, just hopefully this works. For those of you that are on social media, you are, might be familiar with uh, this. You no doubt have seen hashtag life goals. And um, for those of you that aren't like me, um, it's a thing where people uh, put up an image or a picture of themselves, or usually it's other people where they then have a caption hashtag life goals. So I've I've made one myself. Um, that's Abby. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the young adults always tease me because I'm so not very techy. <laughs> Um, but that's for them. But so some of these life goals are just meant to be funny. But I think others uh, give us a little bit of an insight into what perhaps people desire in their life. Uh, so whether it's um, you know material possessions like a, a nice house, um, or whether it's um, I don't know if you can see that's David Beckham. He was a soccer player back in the day, and he married Sp- Posh Spice. Do you remember the Spice Girls? Or oh, you're too, some of you are too young. Um, <laughs> but in my day, they were a thing. Um, and they have these children and they're very wealthy and all the things. But you see that you know, these images or these you know, hashtag life goals give us a bit of an insight into what people uh, desire in life. Well, this morning, uh, we're working our way through these seven signs in the Gospel of John. Um, and John is a disciple of Jesus. Um, he's the author of this Gospel. And so he's included um, you know, certain miracles. He probably saw a whole lot of miracles, but he's included a certain number that he sees as signs that, that give us an indication of who Jesus is. And each sign, it builds on the other. Uh, and so it can be a little bit helpful to, to read John as sort of like a snowball. Um, so I don't really ski or anything, but I've watched enough cartoons to know uh, that when a, a snowball starts off, it's small, and then as it goes down the hill, you know, it builds up speed, it builds up momentum, and it gets bigger and bigger. And so reading John, it can be helpful to think uh, of it like a bit of a snowball, uh, this idea that these signs are actually building on each other. They're building to give us a fuller and a deeper picture of who Jesus is and how he can impact our life. John... Well, it's a snowball, sorry. Because <laughs> we know that John said, you know, Jesus performed many, uh, many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in his book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this morning we get to the fourth sign, and it's when Jesus feeds a crowd of 500. And we've just heard in, in the reading that Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee, And we're told that a great crowd of of, uh, people have followed him there because they've been seeing him do these miraculous signs. And John doesn't give us heaps of details about, you know, what the crowd have kind of been doing all there together. Um, He seems to get right to the point of asking the important questions in life, what are we all going to eat? And so he says to Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? And Philip, apparently a bit of a mathematician, does a bit of a calculation, and I've actually used a different um, version. But he says, uh, eight months of wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 
Now Andrew, another disciple, a little bit more helpful, at least goes and finds a kid. Uh, again, we're not given many details, but a, there's this boy that appears and he seems to have a little bit of food that he's willing to offer. But even he is like, you know, this little bit of food is not going to feed this many people. Uh, and some of the things that I was reading sort of suggest uh, that perhaps John includes this detail, this little dialogue between Jesus and the disciples to sort of give us a picture of where the faith level is at um, of his disciples. But I also think uh, it's John's way of trying to uh, highlight the miraculous nature of what is about to happen. This is not like the Jenkins household. Usually on a Friday, possibly even a Sunday, possibly even a Saturday, (laughs) uh, where we get to around five or six in the evening and we look at each other and we go, ah, dinner, it's come around again. (laughs) What are we going to eat? And on a good day, we're like, leftovers. (laughs) There's leftovers. And I get the leftovers out and I look, it's not really enough to feed everybody, but if I just ration, if we get the ration happening, uh, if I just, you know, Abby never eats dinner, so she can, you know, hers can go along to someone else. If I add a bit of bread to the side, we can pass this off as dinner. We can, (laughs) and feel like we're still reasonable parents. This is not one of those situations. Uh, This is a miracle about abundance. When Jesus sits down those 500 men, but the reality was there's probably a whole lot of women and children there as well. So estimates are like it could be a crowd of 15 to 20,000. But when he sits them all down to give them this sort of, you know, five pieces of bread and two small fish, they get to have as much as they want. Um, And there were leftovers. This is not just a story, you know, about people sharing food and and being really generous with each other so that everyone gets a little bit of something. This uh, is a miracle about abundance. And the crowd, they see the miraculous nature of this, uh, of what has just occurred. They're discerning Jews. And when they see before the uh, food multiplying, uh, food seemingly appearing from nowhere, they make the connection And they say in verse 14, surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. You see, this miracle alludes to, or it's a reminder of events from the past. The uh, Jews are reminded of the prophets of old, like Elijah or Elisha who made food multiply. But even more, they're reminded of Moses. And we know this uh, because there are clues in this passage that hint towards the Exodus. Uh, I think Megan likes to call them interpretive keys. But we're told in that passage that this is near Passover. And the setting that this is taking place, it's in a remote, kind of isolated place. Uh, A bit like a a desert in that sense. And so if you're familiar with Exodus, uh, that Exodus account, uh, it's when um, God's people, the Israelites, have been living in Egypt in slavery. And he rises up Moses, uh, a prophet, who uh, is able to lead the people um, out of Egypt and you know, there's the, the part in the seas where God miraculously uh, makes a path for the uh, Israelites to escape the um, Egyptian army. But then they find themselves in the desert and they're starving to death because it's hard to find food and water in a desert. But again, God sees their need and he continues to provide for his people by sending manna from heaven. Now, I don't know about you, I don't really know much about starvation. I haven't really experienced it. Um, but I can only imagine that the Israelites would have felt such joy and, and such a sense of being loved and cared for when they saw that their God was able to provide you know, food, bread uh, for them from heaven. But the Israelites, they're starving and they're desperate people. And so when they see this manna falling, they, they gather um, as much as they can up. Uh, and the, the idea is that they'll have some now, but they'll store it for later. 
but that manna that they collect, uh, that they want to store for later, that actually um, just rots away. God wanted them to only gather what they needed for that day uh, because he wanted them to learn to trust him, uh, that he would provide for their needs the next day and the day after that and the day after that. See, this Exodus account, it wasn't just about God providing for their physical needs, but it was also an exercise in learning to trust God, learning to follow him and his word. From that event, uh, that Exodus event, manna or bread kind of became a metaphor in Jewish tradition, uh, a metaphor for sort of seeking life um, with God by following God's word. This life-giving food required them to follow God's word, which both together nourished and sustained human life. And if you remember... Oh, sorry, I'm not very good with keeping up with my slides. <laughs> if you remember Jesus' time in the desert when he was being tempted by the evil one, uh, you might re recognise some of these words uh, that Moses says to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 8. God humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you manna, which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, our story of the feeding of the 5,000 doesn't actually end uh, right here. After a little interlude where Jesus uh, goes off and walks on water, which Heidi's going to talk about next week, um, the same crowd who have got fed there go looking for Jesus again. And when they find Jesus, it tells us in uh, verse 25 of chapter 6, uh, Jesus sort of says some pretty cutting words to them. Uh, he says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. So the interest from the crowd as they searched for Jesus was because he provided food. That a miracle of abundance, it, it had captured their attention and it had even got them thinking about who this Jesus guy is, but they hadn't really connected all the dots. Put simply, Jesus can see that their main motivation is actually that they had their tummies fed um, and perhaps what other physical needs he might be able to meet. Remember a sign, it directs us or it points us to something else. The listeners have seen the sign, but they haven't really looked deeply enough to understand where it's pointing. And so Jesus starts to try to explain to them and help them to see that the manna that was given to the Israelites was a taste of what is now fulfilled in Jesus. In Exodus 16, when God provided manna for the people in the desert, God showed himself to be their provider and sustainer. But now the full truth of the matter has been revealed. Jesus is the way God ultimately provides and sustains human beings. And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he continues, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is a bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. The provision in the desert of that exodus and the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000, they're not ends in themselves. They ultimately pointed to God giving humans the true bread of life, Jesus the Messiah, the Saviour, the Word, or the full revelation of God. This bread provides for our human conditions in ways that manna couldn't. Authentic faith in Jesus, the true bread of life, means that we can have life in his name. And I remember when I was, I was 19, 
quite a while ago. <laughs> um, but I was completing my arts degree at Monash and I was also doing um, one subject at Ridley College. It was like an introductory to the New Testament. And I was in my exam um, and it was one of those exams where part of the challenge is you've got to write so much in the time frame they give you. And so I was in my exam, I've already written a couple of essays I think, and I had um, a, another section to complete. I was getting towards the end of the exam um, and I had that horrible moment in the exam where you sort of look at what you've got to write about and you haven't studied it. You don't, it's not the one you're familiar with. And so I'm reading this passage and I'm reading it over and over again. I'm trying to connect different ideas that I, you know, we'd studied and, and themes and ideas that kind of could fit this passage. Um, and time's running out. I've only got sort of, you know, a few minutes left. And so I'm reading through. And I had one of these moments with God where all of a sudden he just lifted from the page uh, what the passage meant. Um, and I had this sort of this insight. And I heard the words um, Jesus say to me, or um, you are dead, but now you have life. See, up until this point, I'd, I'd been at church for a few years, um, and I think even since a child, I always had a love um, and a belief in God. But I, I didn't necessarily really understand the point of Jesus. Um, I, I remember when we used to sing songs in the old church, um, back when it was really small, and I would, um, you know, be at the songs that were about God, I got those. Um, it, you know, God's creator, he's sustainer, he's um, you know, sovereign, he's powerful. I could worship God. But when we had the songs that more talked about Jesus, I, I sort of didn't really connect as much with those. Um, I didn't really understand uh, the real significance of Jesus. But in that exam room that day, I had the revelation of my deep need for Jesus. Uh, despite the fact that Back then, I was a reasonably active um, and healthy 19-year-old. The spiritual reality was that I was starving to death without Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross meant that he had defeated death. And therefore, Jesus was the only one that can actually give us life. Without Jesus, you starve. And it was, this is hard to hear. I remember being in the exam room and actually being confronted by what Jesus was saying to me. Um, I'd never thought of myself at that age as, as dead or starving. Jesus was challenging my own self-reliance. He was challenging my self-righteousness. This idea that I wasn't enough on my own. And it, it was hard to hear. And that's exactly what happens um, in this passage. In verse 60, the crowd respond, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And maybe it's because they didn't want to acknowledge their need for spiritual salvation. Very possibly they took up issue with, um, with a human, you know, Joseph's son, making these claims. But possibly there was even something more. See, the Jewish understanding of faith, it wasn't dualistic. Their whole lives centred around, they were governed by the law. So it impacted uh, their work, their relationships, their family life, what they would do to their, with their possessions, uh, even down to what they ate. They knew they needed God's word every day to live, but now they were hearing something new. Like the manna was the only way to live in the desert, the crowd understood that Jesus was now saying that to truly live meant a complete surrendering to him. And just like the Israelites in the desert needed manna to save a life, so did they, and so do we. We need the bread, Jesus, the living bread, in order to have life. I wonder what you think of uh, when you hear bread of life. 
Maybe you're like me and have had a tendency to think of bread as more like a dinner roll, bread that sits on the side plate rather than the main meal, that we see our faith as something that perhaps works alongside all the other things in our life, all the other goals or agendas or dreams that we might have. Uh, Perhaps this faith is something that supplements our life. Uh, Maybe it teaches us good morals or it would be good for our kids to learn this. Um, Maybe it's something that comforts us us in times of difficult times. And and all those things I think are true, but they're not necessarily having Jesus as a centre. In that exam room that day, I had to face my need for Jesus. But there was more. I also heard the words Jesus say, now your life is mine. If I was dead and he had given me life, that life that I now had was through him and so I was his. In the initial years following that little exam room experience, I had a a period of time where I really enjoyed the nourishment that came from walking closely with Jesus. It's probably more like an entree rather than a side plate, just moved up a bit. But the more I dived into my adult life, uh, when I started working full time, uh, earning money, um, had some wonderful experiences traveling the world, um, we got married, bought a house, uh, all those things, those words of Jesus um, had been sort of pushed more and more to the side as I got caught up in living my own life. My faith had become something that I did rather than what sustained me. That root of self-sufficiency Um, of living for myself, it was deep. Um, By the end of my 20s, um, I was completely bored and exhausted with my faith. I was still rocking up to church. Uh, I might have looked like I was still, you know, doing the Christian thing. Um, But, you know, Jesus had more like, he'd become like the bread that was in the basket in the middle of the table, you know, like at the weddings, where you can pick and choose from it as you you want. I was completely malnourished. Despite having all these wonderful experiences um, and and blessings in my life, the reality remained that I starved without Jesus. But the good news is, you know, Jesus used that very boredom and that dissatisfaction to point me back to him. And the shift happened gradually. It wasn't particularly dramatic, um, but it started with an honest prayer uh, where I said to Jesus, I knew you were true. I tasted and I knew that you were true, but the life that you speak of in your word that I know is true is not what I experience in my life. I told him I was bored and I was empty. And if Jesus, you were really the way to have life, if life was really found in you, you had to show me what that looked like. Because obviously my understanding up until this point of what that looked like was, was off. And Jesus is faithful. He started to open my eyes uh, to things around me that helped me to start to understand more about the life that he, that he had. Um, it was in sermons, it was in conversations. Um, I'm blessed to work at a school um, with, with a lot of Christians and there's a lot of older people that, that really God started to show me were people that could speak into my life. I became more and more aware of the Holy Spirit and how even the most mundane things, God can be working and a little example of that was actually just on Thursday night. I, um, I'd been at work all day, and I've obviously got this sermon in my head, and I'm thinking a lot about bread. Um, and 
I'd come home late from work, Alfred had taken the kids off to swimming lessons, uh, and I always had this little window of opportunity to uh, make dinner, because I actually do cook sometimes, uh, make dinner and have you know, a meal ready for everyone when they got home. And uh, we live in a court and there's lots of kids in our street, and so one of the little kids uh, get a little knock on the door. So I've got dinner on and, okay, I'll just quickly go into the door. You know, one of the kids is there, can Hamish and I come out and play? I said, look, sorry, sweetheart, they're actually not here, they're at swimming lessons. Uh, and I'm trying to get back to my stove that's on. We know that I burn a fair few things, so <laughs> trying to be good. Um, but he keeps on wanting to talk, because he's a seven-year-old. Um, or do you think they'll be able to play maybe after they get back? I said, no, sweetheart, it's, it's probably dinner time, and Hamish has got homework, so he won't be able to play tonight. Ah, <sighs> we don't get homework in our school until grade three. Good to know, good to know. <laughs> trying to get away. And then he says, it's the same age that we get to eat the bread. And I heard the word bread, and it was that Holy Spirit moment where I just felt it, you know, felt his presence even stronger. And I, and I heard the word stay. So I trusted that Jesus was cooking for me. And, <laughs> and, I, um, and I said to him, oh, what, what bread do you get to eat when you're in grade three? And he said, you know, Shannon, the bread. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do know that bread. That, that bread's about Jesus. And he went, what? <laughs> And so we had this little conversation uh, about Jesus being the bread. Um, that, you know, I didn't really think it mattered that much how old you were, but, but more about, you know, if you loved and, and about what it sort of represented. And so I see now that Jesus, you know, his spirit is working in our life all the time and he can show us uh, how it is that we're meant to live. And I, I continue to be challenged every day that Jesus wants more. I continue to be challenged he wants a life fully surrendered to him. And I really wrestle with what that looks like practically um, as a wife, as a parent, uh, as someone who belongs to this community, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a teacher. Uh, I often feel like I'm doing it not very well. But I've become more and more convinced and certain that life in all these roles and responsibilities comes when Jesus is the centre, when he is the dinner plate as opposed to some kind of side plate. And so that's the life goal. You know, it's, it's shifted away from perhaps being some of those things that are caught up with what we looked at earlier. But the life goal is just to live a life where I'm walking with Jesus. And that he's showing me, and I'm reading from his word, and I'm learning from him, what a full life looks like. Let me pray. Well, Father God, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, that you sent your son so that we could have life. And I pray uh, that as your people, Lord, uh, that we would be a people uh, that really do uh, surrender our whole lives to you. Lord, that you would be the food on our dinner plate. And Lord, uh, that we'd be looking to you and putting aside all the other messages that we might have in our world, but that our focus is you and that we look to you to see the way that we're meant to live and have life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.